1: President and CEO of the Mutti Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for our monthly teleconference call where the Mutti Law Firm attorneys educate, enlighten and empower our employers and employees in understanding different issues and topics of U.S. immigration law. This month, I am joined by two of my esteemed colleagues at the Mutti Law Firm, Joel Janovich, who's a member, along with Jim uh, McLaughlin, who has been with the firm. Uh, Jim, is it over, like, what, a decade? It feels yeah, like yeah the other it is day. over a
2: decade now.
1: Well, welcome, and thank you for hanging in there, Jim. What else can I say to you? We appreciate each and every person in our amazing team. Um, so, you know, to get started with the topic we all know that the world of immigration law has always been unpredictable. It's got ups and downs. We've seen it over the last few years, how the sands keep shifting, sometimes at an alarming pace, depending on changes in administration and other issues. And this is particularly in the area of employment-based immigration for employers and their foreign national employees, uh, in trying to continuously keep up with the changes of U.S. immigration law. So in today's teleconference, we will look at the fundamental principles of PERM, as well as uh, talking about any recent developments or cases where we have seen the permanent, you know, the process, how it changes for employers and their employees, And remember, for the employee, it's not just the permanent residence, but if there's any mix-up or mismatch, it could later down the road impact their ability to get the N-400 approval for their U.S. citizenship or naturalization. So I know I use the word PERM, so the question sometimes is, what does PERM stand for? PERM is Program Electronic Review Management, because now we can file it online Even though you can do it by mail, it takes it's much, much slower. Most people recommend it be done online. And it is the very first step in starting and filing the labor certification for the three stages of the green card, the other two being the I-140 immigrant petition, and then the last stage, which is the 485. So this is the first step in the three-step employment-based green card. So now I'm going to jump to invite my esteemed colleague, Joe, Janovich, to talk and discuss a little bit about the purpose of the labor certification.
0: Yes, um, I, I think understanding the purpose and kind of keeping that in your mind as you're going through this can be useful. I mean, obviously from the employer and the employee perspective the purpose is, uh, is a little bit different than perhaps the Department of Labor's purpose, but from the employer's perspective you, you have a job opening. Uh, oftentimes we hear from our clients Um, These are job openings that are very challenging to fill. They can't find anyone. They finally find a a foreign national who's able to fill the position. Um, That person may be on on H-1B or OPT or what have you or may not even be in the country potentially. Um, regardless, um, the employer wants that person to be able to fill a permanent position. The employee wants to be in that permanent position. Um, From the Department of Labor's perspective, when this system was set up, a big portion of this was, yes, it was to make sure employers are able to bring in talented foreign nationals, kind of the best and brightest from across the, the globe, but they also want to protect U.S. workers. They want to make sure that, uh, when there is an availability, a permanent position available, and there's a U.S. worker that's willing and able and qualified to fill the position, that they will get first shot at it, essentially. Um, and so this is ultimately a labor market test. And um, when you're going through that process, you have to kind of understand that. It's not a matter of gaming the system. Um, I think people outside of immigration think that there, there's a lot of that going on. And, and once you're in immigration, you quickly come to realize that, again, these positions, they're, they're not easy to fill. You, you spend a lot of time. Um, as we go through this, you'll see this is a very complicated process. Pretty much every employer that knows what they're doing, they have an attorney that they're paying to get this done, to make sure it's done properly um, because of the ramifications of, of making even a minor error it can be catastrophic to the case. Um, so no one's willing to do this if, if they could have just found a U.S. worker and hired them to fill the position. Um, so I Excellent think as we go points. along, you'll you'll see that.
1: Thank you, Joel. Um, Excellent w- points. I think that makes perfect sense because you know you can't get a more complex process in the entire green card processing than the PERM labor certification issue. So now we're going to jump to our resident expert within this group, Jim McLaughlin, who spends pretty much most of his time working on permanent labor certification-related issues. So, uh, Jim, I know that there's a lot of employers and employees that will be listening to this teleconference call uh, and individuals who want to in the future go through this process. So what type of issues should the employer be concerned about and the information, et cetera? And the reason it's even important for employees or prospective employees is because if there's a mistake by the employer or the employee, it will mess up the entire process for you as the employee going through the process. So, Jim, take yeah. it away.
2: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So
1: the, the PERM process,
2: as you've mentioned, obviously is very complex. But there's two aspects to it. There's the logistical aspect of just you're dealing with a bureaucracy. So what are the steps you need to take to get there, to get to the final filing of the labor certification and get it certified? And then there's also the, the strategic aspect. And this process is emerging of both. So, you know, one of the first, obviously, steps that you should have to take is an employer who isn't already registered with the, with the, um, the Department of Labor needs to register uh, their business entity uh, through a PERM account. They need to make sure that they're using appropriate information because, as Joel mentioned, if there's a problem, it may not be till many years in the future when it's too late to fix it, such as, you know, for many of our Indian clients, you could be looking at 15, 30 years. All of a sudden, there's an issue. And that's an awful, huge chunk of their time. So you want to make sure when you're registering with the Department of Labor, uh, you're using uh, correct information. Make sure you're using the correct FEIN for the entity. There are lots of entities that um, are umbrella organizations with different subsidiaries, often with their own FEIN. You need to make sure that that FEIN is tied to that individual's job offer years into the future. So you need to make sure that you're using the correct FEIN. Uh, you need to make sure that you're registering the account early um, when you're starting this process because there can be issues. The Department of Labor may not be able to find you online, um, and so it may take weeks, sometimes even months, to clear that up. So you don't want to wait till the last minute because this process is all connected. You know, your recruitment period is 60 days, and if you waited till the last minute, all of a sudden your ads may be expiring because they expire after 180 days. So these are all things you need to keep in mind. Um, you need to make sure you're using the correct address. And if there's travel, you need to make sure that it's mentioned there. You know, um, similar to the FEIN, if you've got lots of different um, offices, different subsidiaries, you need to make sure you're using the correct ad- address for that FEIN. Um, and based upon the nature of the position, You also need to talk to your attorney to make sure that the language you're using regarding the address may also be okay. You need to make sure you're using the correct number of employees. You need to make sure that if there's some sort of uh, familiar relationship between the beneficiary of the perm and the ownership of the entity, that may have to be also um, disclosed on the 9089 eventually. So you need to keep in mind these things. And that familiar relationship is very broad. Basically, it's anybody. It could be a blood relative, it could be uh, through marriage, so you need to be thinking about your brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws as well, because if it comes up later and you answer no, thinking that that may be too far removed, then you could end up getting a denial and have an issue there. Now, with the PERM itself, once you've registered, um, and once you get that prevailing wage determination, you know, you're know you going to be doing ads. You need to make sure you're just with your attorney, the proper ads for your entity. Um, You know, you can use company website, employee referral program, TV, radio, uh, campus recruitment, and all of these may not be the most appropriate for the position uh, that you're recruiting for. You know, for example, if you're recruiting for somebody with a bachelor's and five years of experience, for you to use on-campus recruitment for an undergrad institute um, or university, that could be problematic because guess what? that may not be good faith recruitment because none of those people are going to have five years of experience. Um, and so you need to be very careful with this. Now, the while the rules and the regulations don't change every day, there are cases that help define and help us navigate those rules and regulations, give us more clarity as to what the Department of Labor is looking at. For instance, and probably one of the biggest cases I can think of, um, is the most recent Facebook decision. In this case, uh, there seemed to be a systematic way that Facebook was dealing with U.S. workers in regular recruitment and what their PERM process was for foreign nationals. It wasn't simply a matter of using just um, a mailing address for them to send their resumes to, but actually they they handled them completely differently. And that's something that you need to be aware of as employers. You need to be handling the PERM recruitment even though there's – I would say more I's darted and more T's crossed in the PERM process than in probably your regular recruitment. Um, Nonetheless, you need to be sort of following the same process you do for your regular recruitment when you're just advertising for a position, even when a foreign uh, national may not be trying to go into that position. Um, So you need to be aware of of these aspects because it can completely affect the case.
1: Thank you so much, Jim, and I think that's particularly relevant from a recent case where the Department of Labor pretty much said, you can't just come up with this concocted fictional way of doing uh, processing perm cases, which in a way didn't make a lot of sense because most employers for decades have been saying, hey, Department of Labor, this is not how we process a perm case. This is not real world recruitment. You're asking us to jump through a million different hoops to make this happen. But now they're saying, whoa, 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 you can't not have access or available response by email if that's what you do with your regular you know, hiring process. You can just say, I want a snail mail letter because we know that with post office delays and other problems, that's not the way most employers in today's uh, technology and internet and email world right. really work. So it's really interesting with these changes. So when Joel, Jim, and I are going over this, we're weaving in not just the traditional and true methods of labor, but what we're seeing of labor certification, but what we're seeing with the latest cases dealing with the firm situation. And for those employees who, when they heard Jim talk about FEIN, what's FEIN? It's the Federal Employer Identification Number. That's every, it's like a social security number, but for an employer, because now we know that these teleconferences are listened to by hundreds of thousands of individuals and employees as much as employers.
2: If you don't mind, Sheila, I'd just like to chime in on something you just said. I think it's important that Facebook decision um, to understand that Facebook was following the regulations. They weren't in violation of the regulations. They were in violation of treating U.S. workers and differently than their foreign nationals. So even when you're abiding by the regulations, you can still have issues. Um, so it 's really important to be discussing these matters with your attorney who 's handling your labor certification case because it 's not I just wonder if they white.
1: would yeah very good point. I wonder if Facebook if they would file an appeal because you 're now going to add you make me go through ten different things that are not real world now I follow all of this, the crazy rules you set in place, Department of Labor, and now you 're telling me i 'm supposed to also try to juggle that and delicately balance real world with the orchestrated weird way in which the Department of Labor expects uh, you know, recruitment to happen. I don't know. I, I wonder if, if a judge is going to come back and say in an appeals court that this is not right or fair, that if they want to do it that way, then they need to put that into the regulation or clarify it. But hey, it's for them and their lawyers to figure it out. It's good that we now, all of us who are listening to this teleconference, know that we have to delicately balance both the regulations and the uh, orchestrated requirements, as well as the real world of how to communicate with employees or potential candidates applying for the job. So what are the general guidelines with respect to preparing a labor certification? Obviously, unlike the H-1B, which is based on a present job, the green card is based on the concept of a future job offer. So it's not what's going to happen today. It's going to be what the person will end up doing and the employer's salary and payment and all of that is only effective after the green card is actually approved for the person. So that could be, as Jim had earlier mentioned, 5, 10, 15, 20 years or longer. Um, Next, the labor certification and the subsequent I-140 immigrant petition also are based on the future job offer. Now, the future job offer can be the job that is being currently occupied by the employee going through the immigration process and who's on an H-1B status, but the job title, the job description, and the minimum requirements in order to be consistent ideally must match with the H-1 and labor certification. Sometimes we've seen either the USCIS at the I-140 stage or the Department of Labor come up and say, whoa, 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 what do you mean this job is completely different than the one from the H-1B position? Um, and so it's, it's not advisable or logical sometimes to have separate and different job requirements for the H-1B and the permanent immigration process. And this is especially true where we have, as we just talked about it, where the classification of the permanent immigration process uh, in the employment-based second preference is preferred, though I know in the past Year we've had a lot of EB 3 downgrades. So then they say, whoa, you just gave a much lower level, for example, level one or two, and now you're suddenly saying we need a master's and five years for this future green card job. Um, so Joel, I'm gonna ask you to jump in about the issue on the minimum requirements for a firm.
0: Yeah, a, 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 big, a big piece, a kind of a critical piece of the firm process is, is determining what the minimum requirements are for the position. Um, So, again, these are the minimum requirements. Uh, We're not talking about preferences here. So you may prefer to have an employee that's worked in a particular field or that has, you know, taken – has particular training, um, but it's either a requirement or it's not. If it's not a requirement, then it is not going to be considered as part of, um, you know, setting the position for PERM purposes. Um, so for purposes, you're going to be listing the minimum education, the minimum number of years of experience. Um, uh, again, this is not about uh, this, is not about what the beneficiary has. So to kind of give you a, a silly example, um, if you had a Ph.D. and you were working as a fry cook, you know, at a fast food restaurant, no one's going to make the argument that you require a Ph.D. In, in really anything in order to be, you know, making French fries. Um, so you can't and, be and just Joe, looking at. And it could
1: be this, and it could be the same even for if you're a programmer, analyst, or a software engineer. You don't need a PhD in a narrow field of computer science in order to perform your job. I think it's the, it's more relatable to our clients who are listening to the sure, show sure. and say, "Oh my God, why is that relevant?"
0: Right. So it's, again, it's about the whatever the requirements are for the particular position, regardless of what education the beneficiary has. Obviously, the beneficiary is going to ultimately need to meet the requirements, but um, that does not determine what the actual requirements are for the position. Um, you're also going to be listing any special skills required for the job. Um, you know, a, a, you, you need to be able to quantify this. Um, so uh, sometimes you'll have a, for instance, a drug test required. That would, that would typically have to be listed there. Um, if you don't list that, it could come back to, to haunt you as far as that case goes. Um, and probably more importantly, much more relevantly, because we see this all the time, are issues related to travel. If, if you are going to have the employee traveling, and we see this, I mean, with a consulting firm, it's, it's basically um, almost 100%, uh, not quite, but where, where the employee is expected to travel, you have to make sure you are placing all the travel, all the relocation information in there to make sure that you are going to um, have a successful case. You have to pay attention to uh, the company headquarters, and that's another big issue. A lot of places are more virtual, and maybe everyone's working from home, and maybe you don't even need a headquarters. But for perm purposes, you really do. Um, it's going to be a big uh, logistically a big hassle. Um, you know, just keeping in mind these rules were written for the last century, so we are we are trying to take rules from, from that were were written. Uh, without necessarily taking in mind um, the modern workforce and and making sure that we can, we can fit our um, requirements into that. And again, that's something you really need to discuss with the attorney, because if you mess up the travel stuff, um, again, this is one of those things that we see um, after the fact, and it it can be a huge problem and perhaps not recoverable without starting the whole thing over again. Yeah. That's true. uh,
1: Joel. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, the physical headquarters is critical, and I know a lot of consulting companies say, but we don't need it. We exactly the issues that Joel just raised, not an option because that's what you mentioned on the perm Labor Certification I-140, and they'll look at that, and they will consider that. And that kind of ties in you know, to the issue of how much travel and travel is required, which was just discussed a few minutes earlier, um, and why all of that is critical because they look at that as a very fundamental need. The next very very important issues, of course, are prevailing wage determinations and the appropriate recruitment for professional positions, which is what majority of us who are listening to this call are in- interested in. And we're we're going to have our resident expert, who does perms from morning even morning evening night weekends, lives eats and breathes for per- a perm and labor certification issues, Jim, to jump in and discuss the prevailing sure. wage determination, what we call PWDs, Jim.
2: Sure. Yeah, my bread and butter. Um, but I would like to also add into what Joel was saying is often when I'm talking to employees when the first time they're going through the firm process, you're absolutely right. It it's your minimum requirement. And how I like to to phrase it, and because I think it's pretty accurate, is it's your lowest common denominator. In the real in the real world recruitment, quote unquote, you're looking for the highest caliber individual who can perform the duties more efficiently than anybody else. But that's not what the firm process is doing. They're looking for that individual who meets the basic minimum requirements, which is why listing them appropriately is so important, Um, and it can't be those preferences. It can't be the person functioning at the highest level. It's got to be that lowest common denominator. You meet the requirements, and you're a U.S. worker. That's the individual that the Department of Labor is looking for. So you've got to keep that in mind. Now, once you've determined what that and is, you've gone back and forth probably, making sure that it's understood and clear, then you submit the prevailing wage determination with the Department of Labor. Um, So really the first step of the firm process after registering your account should be determining what the position is you're sponsoring the individual in and then filing the prevailing wage determination with the Department of Labor. Um, Now, the prevailing wage determinations going to take its time right now the department of labor is taking roughly about six months to adjudicate these so ideally you want to be starting this process as early as you can because it takes so long before you've even started recruitment in most instances Um, and that the department of labor after going uh reviewing that prevailing wage is going to issue you uh the minimum wage that must be paid to the individual for the position so it's going to tell you the wage uh level and it's going to be based upon what the position is to figure out the correct job code. And that's what eventually you'll be using and listing on the PERM application. Now, once the prevailing wage comes back those six months after you've submitted it, you can finally start recruitment in most instances. Um, and that recruitment is has to be a minimum of 60 days. And like I mentioned earlier, you're looking at uh, there are three four, There there are six forms of recruitment, essentially three of them never change. You've got your notice of posting, you've got your Sunday Uh, and you have your state workforce agency ad. And then you've got an additional three that you can choose and pick from as as to what's most appropriate for the position. Um, You know, usually online, trade publications, campus recruitment, like I mentioned earlier, company website, those
1: things. Great. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, This is very, very thorough, and it really gives you an appreciation and understanding of the complexity of the entire process. And talking about right hand matching the left hand or the two sides of the column matching each other, when the employer and employer sitting and looking at the form 1989, which is the primary form or document uh, for the PERM process and filing, each and every question is extremely important and it is interrelated with the other questions on the same form, and it is interrelated and very closely connected with being able to match the background, the education, the experience and qualifications of the employee. Because what we find over and over again is a lot of times the employers and their attorneys who may not be as well-versed in complex, perm, immigration-related issues, they will provide all the correct information for the job, but they forget a very important aspect is does the foreign national for whom you're sponsoring the green card even qualify and can be approved based on the requirements that you mentioned in the 1989. It may sound like so 101 fundamental, but we see this all the time when I do consultations, when we look at cases of denials, of audits, oh my God, the foreign national that they are sponsoring will not qualify for this job based either on the primary or on the alternate requirements they have to qualify under one or the other. And as Jim just pointed out, if it's the alternative or the, uh, the, 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 the primary requirements, ultimately the salary has to be the higher of the two. So now you're adding one more requirement. So now let me again jump back to Joel to discuss maybe some of the issues about, you know, the headquarters role, travel, and just the proffered mm. position, the minimum requirements, both both Joel and Jim and myself, all of us, will sort of jump in and discuss different issues and continue to make it as lively a discussion as possible. So,
0: so yeah. Joel? I, I think we, we're, we're kind of looking at this as a, a matrix system. The PERM system is a matrix system where everything kind of ties into everything else. Um, so when you're listing those, kind of as Sheila was mentioning, you're listing those minimum, minimum requirements, you're eventually going to get to the part of the PERM where you're now listing how the beneficiary qualifies. And obviously, if there's a mismatch there, that's a big problem. Um, So um, as you're completing the section, you're going to be talking about the the person's training in the field um, and how that, again, possibly ties into what the requirements are. Um, the experience, um, the, the, the person's experience, um, for, for that job. Um, and you're going to have to be looking at potentially the person's level, uh, area of, of education, what they studied is this uh, an alternative education requirement? Is it what was listed initially on the, the initial part of the PERM? Um, are you going to be looking at uh, potentially the combination of education and experience, which is sometimes acceptable, but there are requirements for this. There are you know, all, all sorts of nuances that you have to be looking at. Um, a lot of our clients, obviously, they, they didn't all study in the U.S., so they may have a degree from abroad. Um, and so you sometimes have to look at the foreign education equivalent. Sometimes you'll have multiple degrees for abroad where they'll have, a, for instance, a 3 years bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and you have to be able to show um, how it is that the person qualifies and potentially has the equivalent of a, uh, a, a qualifying U.S. degree. So all of this is going to tie into how it is that you're completing this term.
2: Right, and it also ties into, if I can interject, you know, the prevailing wage determination, because nothing on this form for the 9089 should be any different than what was on your prevailing wage. So you have going back in time, you've determined what the minimum requirements are, you've listed them on the prevailing wage determination, DOL has issued that, you've done recruitment, and now you're drafting the 9089, the perm application form, and there shouldn't be any surprises here. You should be able to go back in time eight months based upon current processing times, and say, okay, yes, this 98.99 mirrors the prevailing wage determination. Um, and then it also mirrors what I did in recruitment. So in Section H of the PERM application, that's where you list your minimum requirements. So that's where you're really, uh, you know, verifying based upon what you had on the prevailing wage determination. Um, and, in some, and in the ads as well, Uh, because you can't list anything that you didn't use in each of the prior sections of the process. Um, You know, there could be a foreign language requirement, should have been listed on your prevailing wage determination. But keep in mind, when that 989 asks, is there a foreign language requirement, you're checking yes or no. If you're answering yes, you should just be aware that that will increase the chance of an audit. Doesn't mean it's automatic, but it does increase the chance. Now, an audit, and I think uh, we'll probably talk about this a little later, but... You know, there's probably a 25 to 30% chance of audits just generally because it's an adaptation-based process. The Department of Labor doesn't know what we've done. They just know what we said we've done. So when they issue that audit, that's them verifying that we actually did what we said we did. Um, And so you're looking at foreign language requirement. That may increase your chance of an audit. You have a combination of occupations. Uh, That also is something that may increase the chance of audit as well, in the sense of a combination of occupations is say you're going to be the position is an accountant but you also have some sales jobs aspects to your job that's that combination and generally speaking it, the department of labor doesn't like it and if you do have it you have to justify why and that it's acceptable you may Thank have you alternate requirements oh i'm uh, yeah absolutely sure i just want to say you may have alternate requirements as well Like Joel mentioned, that 9089 needs to reflect that correctly, and each question on that 9089 refers to different aspects of it, which going back to that matrix system, you need to make sure all your I's are dotted and T's
1: are crossed. Perfect. Yes, makes perfect sense. And, you know, as we just said, everything, all the sides need to match up. The ads, the advertisements that are placed with the newspapers, for the Department of Labor, the form, the prevailing wage determination, and what we mentioned is the minimum requirements and the job duties, the form 1989, uh, everything, all the different pieces of paper, and the different forms and the different applications, all need to kind of integrate and connect with each other in a manner that it really looks like it's a smooth, seamless process. And so... It's not just complex and complicated. It is really uh, the most complex area as far as I'm concerned about immigration is doing the PERM labor certification in a manner I know a lot of companies that may process the H1 on their own or do other areas because they figure, oh, I think I can figure it out. But very few or nobody that I'm aware of actually plans to file the PERM because of the way the uh, process works. Uh, even though, of course, the Department of Labor has made it crystal clear that any form of reimbursement or compensation to the employer for the PERM process to try to recoup it from the employee is an absolute no-no. It is prohibited because that would impact the wages, and it is considered an employer-based process. Both the PERM and the I-140 are generally considered I-1 uh, employer-based uh, responsibilities and processes, though sometimes People will say USCIS hasn't been as crystal clear about non-payment, and that's a fact. But most people say, hey, try to avoid any kind of recoupment, definitely of the PERM, but most likely of the I-140 petition as well. Second, if you have any type of bargaining representative or union, then that notice of this position needs to be provided to the union as opposed to just a notice of posting in the two common areas and all of that that goes happens with the regular perm. And I know that as I'm talking to you and post sort of this whole world of COVID, uh, I'm on several university boards and uh, nonprofit boards and museums and stuff like that in this region, and all of them are talking about many, many, many organizations where bargaining representatives and unions and the need to unionize is increasing, so it's important to understand those rules as well. And if there is a layoff by the employer in that area of the employment as mentioned on the PERM, uh, or even in a related occupation, within the past six months prior to filing the application, then the employer is no longer permitted or allowed to proceed with the PERM. You have to now wait an additional six months and, of course, that's different if the employer, if the employee quit the employer, then that's not a problem to proceed with it if you want to do it for some other employee versus a layoff. If it's a layoff, it's a big, big problem. Again, who is protected? Why is PERM? It's meant to protect a U.S. worker. And most people say, oh, that means U.S. citizens. No, 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 no. It doesn't only mean U.S. citizens. It means the U.S. citizen. It means a U.S. permanent resident. It includes Certain um, people who are employment authorized, like during an asylum or refugee kind of people, people who have an EAD card, an unrestricted EAD card, all of those are technically protected uh, under the PERM regulations and referred to as U.S. workers. The area of intended employment is in that area or within this normal commuting distance from that region. That's considered the area of intended employment, and again, it's not just the main occupation that we talk about, but a related occupation that's very closely connected would be equally impacted and notification is required by the notice of posting, or as we talked about the bargaining representative, if there's a union, etc. So again, lots of little do's and don'ts that are critical to the success of your PERM labor certification need to be taken into account. Uh, Jim, I know you might want to jump in and add something, but we also want to have you discuss or joel we'll have you jump in to discuss the qualifications of the beneficiary and how they need to meet or satisfy all of the minimum requirements so i 'll start with you, Joel, and then have request Jim to jump in.
0: yeah, we mentioned this earlier this is again part of that matrix concept where everything falls uh, follows everything else and everything's kind of connected here. Um, the beneficiary obviously has to qualify for the position, as, as again as we mentioned earlier. Um, otherwise, you, you've kind of missed the point of uh, part of the point of this. Um, so the things that are going to be they're going to be looked at are, for instance, the highest level of relevant education received. Um, that term that, that word relevant is important here because it is possible that the person has a higher level of education that you're going to actually list here. So for instance. If your individual is applying for an IT position, has a bachelor's degree in uh, computer science or something along those lines, very common we will have these employees that will then go get, let's say, an MBA, um, Master's of Business Administration. Well, the MBA may not be directly related to that position, and you may not be using that for, this, for the particular position that you're, you are sponsoring for. And assuming you're not, then the highest level of relevant education here would be that Bachelor's of Science and, and you know, Bachelor's of Computer Science. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind, something to be looked at. Um, you also have to look at, again, and, uh, we've, we've hit on this a couple of times here is looking at all the different, all the different requirements, making sure that all of them are, are going to be met, um, by the individual who, who is, who that you're, spo- uh, that you are sponsoring, um, which is, I guess, Kind of the, the second part of that labor market test is you're first saying that there's no qualified U.S. workers, and then you're saying, but we do have this person who does qualify, and here's how.
2: Right, and if I can uh, jump in there as well. Now, this is obviously something that should have been thought of at the very beginning of the process when you're thinking about the position you want to sponsor the individual in, um, but how do they qualify for the position? You know, if you're using experience with the employer, uh, there could be a bit of scrutiny there. You have to either be able to show that you're it's you're unable to train somebody for that job to be able to use that experience, or the experience where it was gained in that position needs to be substantially different than the perm position the individual is being sponsored for. You also the employer can't really have paid for the beneficiary's education or um, experience because then, unless you're also offering it to any applicants, you can't use that for a reason for disqualification. If you've paid for that education, then if somebody comes into that position is applying for it and they don't have that particular education, you have to be willing to pay, if that's the only thing that's missing, you have to be willing to pay it for them as well. So generally speaking, uh, you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't use education or training that an employer paid for in the recruitment process since it's really the minimum.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you both, Joe and Jim. So sure. next we jump into the issue about Section K of the form, and uh, part of the reason why we're going through and explaining it again is not obviously to have you complete the form, but for you to just get a smattering of the idea of what type of issues need to be addressed and provided to the lawyer. Hopefully, it's one of us at the Moosey Law Firm, but if not, whoever, whichever law firm or lawyer, your in-house counsel or lawyer that you're working with that is processing these uh, the, the PERM application and filing it on behalf of the employer, For the benefit of the particular employee that is being sponsored. So for Section K, with respect to the work history, really we need to explain that this section is utilized to list all other aspects of how the employee slash beneficiary may qualify for the position that has not been addressed in any of the other sections. For example, required licenses or certifications or additional degrees or education or supervisory role, number of employees being supervised, or like, for example, the experience that qualifies for the position or Is it at least three years because you don't want every fresh graduate, for example, to apply for the job and say that I qualify because if that's the minimum requirement, you usually have some couple of years of prior experience prior to joining the current employer, unless the job is, as Jim just explained, 50% or more different. Um, and it's common to get denials for not showing all of the education, the experience, and the special skills that are listed in the H14 in and Section K. The two, as we said from the beginning, have to absolutely match with each other. And Yeah, so, I, would say if you, mm-hmm.
2: yeah I would say that's probably the most denials we see, individuals not you know, listing in Section K um, the minimum requirements that weren't listed previously.
1: Exactly. And even things like if the employer requires a a drug test or background checks, uh, all of those must be listed because I know even at multi-law firm, we have criminal checks and fingerprinting. We do preliminary background checks. Most employers do that to protect themselves and to protect the other employees within the organization. And so, all of those must be mentioned both with maybe possibly even with the prevailing wage determination on the 1989 form so that, every, so that there's no surprises and people will say, well, 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 why are we being asked to do this now? But that was never mentioned as additional information that's required. What about the Department of Labor questionnaire that's issued after filing? Joel, I'm going to request you to touch upon that and maybe... Joel and Jim to talk even about audits, because that's the next hot issue, of course, is the audit and audit trends.
0: Yeah, um, so you, once you, after you file this eventually, kind of potentially towards the tail end of this process, you're gonna get a questionnaire and you're gonna have 30 days to respond. And the questionnaire is really gonna be verifying four things, and I I think part of this is just to kind of keep the integrity of their program. They wanna make sure everything is legit, that the employer actually filed this. They're gonna make sure um, that the person listed actually works for the employer, um, that, um, that they filed this labor certification for the particular position listed in that location that's also listed on that labor certification and that they're sponsoring the specific individual, um, the specific foreign national for that position. Um, in theory, well, well, what you should be able to do is respond to those questionnaires, again, within 30 days, and you should be responding yes to all of them. Um, and if you can't do that or you don't do that, um, again, this is, this is one of those little bureaucratic things that will uh, potentially end the case. Um, doesn't necessarily mean assuming you do this and this is this part of the, of the process is pretty straightforward um, if you do this it doesn't mean it's necessarily the end of the case however, because of the audits um, and so right now we're looking roughly as Jim mentioned uh, twenty five to thirty percent of these cases are selected randomly for audit doesn't mean you did something wrong and it you know I think people hear the word audit and I think the 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 word audit is most closely associated with the IRS. This is not an IRS audit. This is a DOL audit, and they're going to look to make sure that the recruitment was done properly. They're going to make sure that the, they're going to look at the, the resumes that came in, the, the uh, screenings that were done, the interviews, et cetera, to make sure everything was done properly. Um, and uh, I'll let Jim kind of go into greater detail. Um, he's been dealing with a lot of these audits over the years. So what, what have you been gotcha. seeing, Jim? Sure, Thank
2: you, yeah, Joe. So, yeah, it's really – the labor certification process is really unforgiving. We've talked about throughout this entire teleconference making sure your I's are drawn and then T's are crossed. Well, when – if there's not a clear error on the 90-89, then the audit is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. The Department of Labor is looking at everything you've done. Now, one of the things, you know, pitfalls to be aware of that's pretty common is your recruitment report. Recruitment report needs to list all the recruitment that you've done, all the ads. It needs to list any resumes received and job-related reasons for disqualification. That, that last part, the job-related reasons for disqualification, is often an issue we see. You need to make sure that the reasons why you disqualified any potential U.S. workers instead of offering them a position um, is that they were. it's based upon the minimum requirements of the job itself and not something that wasn't a requirement. You know, you often may have required a bachelor's degree and five years of experience, and then the reason for disqualification is that somebody didn't have uh, requisite knowledge or experience with Java. Well, was that on the 98 and nine? Was that on the prevailing wage determination? Where was it listed? You didn't list it as a specific requirement, so now your case is denied. So you really need to be uh, aware of those issues um, and. For errors on the 9089, you know, sometimes they're not going to notice it right away, but then they may through an audit that there was a particular error. And if there's an error on the 9089, that is also a reason for denial. Now, in some instances, there's a question of, well, was that omission or error material to the process? And that may hold up in an APA lawsuit if you want to go that way. Um, But most likely, it's just going to be denied by the CEO. You may file a bulk uh, appeal, and you may be able to overcome that. But that's going to take you five, six years to get that decision. Uh, So ultimately, you. you want to do it right the
1: first time. Absolutely. And oh, my God, for those who don't know what a CEO is, it's a certifying officer from the Department of Labor. I know a lot of individuals are also listening, as I said. But you can see how crazy and complicated the process is. And I know we're always sensitive to trying to wrap this up within 30 to 40 minutes, and I think we're pretty close to the edge of that. So I hope we've shared with you and given you a flavor of the variety, complexity, and nuanced issues with respect to the PERM labor certification process. On uh, behalf of myself, uh, Sheila Murthy, Joel Yanovich, James uh, James McLaughlin, who we, of course, call Jim Lovingly, uh, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, we want to take this opportunity to thank you, not just for attending today's teleconference, but hope you had a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving with your loved ones and your families. We want to wish you a happy holiday season. And we certainly hope that we at the Murthy Law Firm can continue to help you, whether you're the employer, the employee, uh, or your family members, with respect to all of your immigration matters, because our goal is to continue to educate, enlighten, and empower you as you go through that immigration process. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a wonderful, happy holiday season, and we will see you next year. So Happy New Year to everyone. Bye now. This is a free service.
0: The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm. How to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.